Well, tonight we are back in 1 Corinthians, and we are in chapter 5 this evening. So we're going to read the entire chapter. It's not lengthy, but uh, we're going to read chapter 5. So find 1 Corinthians 5 and then stand with me and let's read it. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for your word, and just the fact that we can learn from every part of your word. And Every part of your word is just as practical and just as relevant to us as any other. So, Lord, we need to know how to practice church discipline, and we need to know uh, what to do with sin in the body. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn from this chapter tonight, that we would have your wisdom on this issue, and, Lord, that uh, we also would be Uh, willing to do what is necessary to deal with sin in the church. So, Lord, we pray that uh, you would uh, use this uh, passage of Scripture in our lives tonight once again. And, Lord, we thank you again for the privilege of worship and for fellowship and the opportunity again to be together. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we'll be looking at an example of church discipline. In every generation of church history, the problem of sexual immorality has been a blight on the church, but perhaps it has never been worse than it is in the evangelical church in America today. 
We have seen all sorts of scandals in recent times. And what often happens in the world is something the church is not immune to. But when we study the New Testament, we discover that the problem of sexual immorality is not anything new. It was a big problem in the first century as well. And in this fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians, we see that the Apostle Paul was dealing with an issue like this in the church at Corinth. And his solution to the problem is what we would call the practice of church discipline. The practice of church discipline has become a foreign concept in much of the church today. The churches that are affiliated with, uh, with us, that we uh, kind of have kindred spirit with, will understand that church discipline is a necessary element of shepherding and pastoral care. And yet, many other churches never practice it. And when you bring up the fact that this is a mandate from Scripture, the leaders of those churches seem to respond to it as if this is a strange thing for us to even consider doing in the church today. But in 1 Corinthians 5, we see an example of church discipline in action in the early New Testament church. There was a man in the church at Corinth that clearly needed to be disciplined by the church. And Paul was absolutely amazed that they had not carried that out as they had been instructed in Scripture. And by the way, I think that One of the first things that goes often when a church gets to the place where it is no longer committed to holiness and no longer committed to the sufficiency of Scripture is the jettisoning of the practice of church discipline. That's one of the first things that goes. Why is that? Because church discipline is very difficult and it is much simpler to just let things go instead of confronting sin in the church. We live in a live and let live society today, so it is no longer politically correct to confront sin. People are hypersensitive to any kind of accountability today, and some churches are even afraid of being sued, and so they back off from following this biblical practice. But what we have in 1 Corinthians 5 is a scathing rebuke from Paul for not doing what they were commanded to do in disciplining this man who was guilty of the sin of incest. Now, as we've already seen, the people in Corinth lived in a very permissive environment as far as sexual permissiveness. And yet, you know, it probably was not that much different from our world today. Perhaps it was not even as bad as our society is today. They didn't have the same kind of media that we have today that is constantly feeding this kind of sexual permissiveness. 
But the case study that is given for us in 1 Corinthians 5 involves a man who was guilty of blatant sexual immorality. In fact, he was guilty of actual incest. In this case, there was absolutely no doubt he was guilty. He was having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. But now, listen very carefully. The emphasis here is not on this man or what he had done. It is on the church and what the church had failed to do. And we read it a few minutes ago, but I think sometimes the best way of teaching Scripture is just reading it all at one time. And so I'm going to read through this again so it can just kind of sink in a little bit. This is one of those passages that really almost is uh, self-teaching, if you will, if you just read it carefully. Paul says that it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist, even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what? Have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now, that really is very straightforward. We really should not have uh, many questions at all about this passage of Scripture, what Paul is saying here. But... Nonetheless, to fill the time, uh, we'll go ahead and walk through it. This is, uh, in a sense, a long passage of Scripture, but 
I want to break it into three parts, uh, excuse me, four parts tonight. That'll make it a little easier to go through. And first of all, we see the need for discipline, the need for discipline. Discipline is something that most of us do not naturally desire to do. Most of you who are parents would like it much better if you never had to discipline your children, right? And most Christians in the church do not relish the idea of having to co- confront someone else in regard to their sin. It's, it's not a pleasant thing to consider doing. And of course, we don't know all the reasons why the Corinthian Christians were hesitant to discipline this so-called brother, because the Bible doesn't really tell us exactly their reasons But their reasons were probably not unlike ours today. Perhaps this person was an influential church member. Or maybe he was related to someone in the church that was an influential church member. And no one wanted to embarrass him. Maybe he was just a well-liked individual with a likable personality. In other words... He was just a good old boy, and everybody liked him. Perhaps he was a big giver, and they didn't want to do without his offerings. We don't really know because we're not told, but maybe in the light of the evil of their surrounding culture, they didn't see this as any big deal. They had just gotten used to this sort of thing. But whatever the reason or reasons they had rationalized or minimized the immorality in their midst and saw no reason for church discipline. So Paul's first step here was to show them the seriousness of the situation and help them to see it as God sees it. This sin was serious and it should never have been tolerated in the church, which is something they should have already known. The phrase, it is actually reported in verse 1, tells us that this case was an acknowledged case that had no need of proof. This was not a matter of gossip or hearsay. Paul would never have been so bold on something like this if it had merely been a rumor But apparently this was well known and had not been denied. Not only that, but this was obviously sin. This was not something questionable at all. It wasn't something like gluttony where it's difficult to answer how much is too much. This was not something subjective that could be interpreted in many different ways. This was pretty much a clear case. It was a glaring sin that was even recognized to the pagan world as being wrong. From Cicero and others, we know that such incest was also strictly forbidden under Roman law. And as Paul points out here, this kind of sin does not exist even among the Gentiles. Even the pagan Gentile world knew this was wrong. So there was no question about it. 
The guy was living in sin, but instead of being shocked by this or appalled by it, the Corinthian believers were acting like it was no big deal. And yet, by tolerating this blatant sin in their fellowship, the testimony of the church was being greatly diminished. And that is always the cost of sexual immorality in the church. Our witness before the world becomes tarnished. And another thing to note here is that this is in the Greek present tense. The Greek present tense means this was a continual state. The text says someone has, Greek present tense, his father's wife. This was not a one-time offense or a one-time moral failure. He was living with this woman. This was something that was in a continual state of occurrence when Paul wrote this letter. Now, someone may say, well, what about the woman? Doesn't she deserve to be disciplined as well? I believe the fact that Paul did not call for her to be disciplined as well indicates she probably was not a believer. If she had been a Christian or claimed to have been, then she no doubt would have come under the same reproof as this man by the Apostle Paul. So the fact that she is not mentioned is probably proof that she was not a believer and was not part of the church. But notice what Paul has to say about the attitude of these early believers. He says in verse 2, you have become arrogant and not mourned instead. Paul could not believe that they could be so apathetic in response to such a flagrant sin. Folks, listen, any sin that God abhors, we also must abhor. And as unpopular as this doctrine may be in the church today, our unwillingness to practice church discipline has a great adverse effect on the overall holiness of the church. Are you aware of the fact that current research shows there is a wide gap between what people say they believe and how they actually behave? Sadly, there's very little difference statistically between the morality of those who claim to be born-again Christians and those who do not make such a claim. There is something drastically wrong in the church when there is virtually no difference between the way we live and the way everyone else lives in the world. There's something wrong with that. And the unwillingness of churches to practice church discipline, I believe, has greatly contributed to that. If there is no accountability for sinning Christians or weeding out those who falsely claim to be Christians, then we should not be surprised when the church acts like the world. And there's something else I know to be true in the society in which we live. The live and let live philosophy has really permeated our worlds, and it has permeated the church. 
for a long time now, there's been kind of an unwritten code that's kind of accepted in our world, our society, uh, that it's something like, you wink at my sin and I'll wink at yours. You don't rat me out and I won't rat you out. This is one of the main pillars of secular humanism. If there is no God, then there's no moral accountability. Everything becomes relative and there's no real moral standard. And that's where many would like for us to be. But Paul declares there is, in fact, a moral standard. And that standard is set by the true and living God. There is, in fact, a God, and he has determined what is right and what is wrong. And Paul says that they should have mourned when they heard about this terrible sin in their midst. It should have grieved them. Look at verse 2 again. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. The word for mourn there is the same word that would be used for mourning the dead. This was a very deep kind of grief. This is the kind of grief they should have had over this sin. Folks, sin in the body should cause us to have grieving hearts. Didn't seem to bother the Corinthians. And too often it doesn't bother us much in the church as well. But it should. It should. And by the way, we should also note that this is the very same reason why the church at Thyatira was condemned by Christ in Revelation 2, 19 and 20. And you may remember it was because they tolerated the woman Jezebel. And she had introduced sexual immorality into the church, and that wasn't being dealt with. But this should never be the case in a church that pleases Christ. And so the first thing we must realize is that open sin in the church grieves the heart of God, and it should grieve our hearts as well. We should see it the very same way God sees it. But notice, secondly, the method of discipline. Paul says at the end of verse 2 that the one who has done this deed should be removed from your midst. And no doubt what Paul is referring to here is the last step of church discipline given to us by Christ in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. And of course, we have seen when we have examined the subject of church discipline that the goal is to restore a fallen brother or sister, not to remove them. That's not the goal. And the first three steps in the process are all designed to restore the fallen brother or sister to full fellowship in the church. But when you get to the end of the process and there is still no repentance, then we are clearly commanded to remove them from the church. Let me just remind you what it says in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. It says this, If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. 
But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, we could spend a whole lot of time, and my intention tonight is not to exegete that passage of Scripture, but this is the clear biblical pattern for church discipline. There are four steps, and it's clearly laid out for us. If a person goes through all four steps and still does not repent, then he's to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, he is to be considered a lost person. And the assumption is, if he was a genuine believer, he would repent. And so he's showing by his uh, unwillingness to repent that he's not really a believer. But back in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that they should deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of, of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And you say, what is that all about? Well, this is fairly common language in the Bible, and it is not necessarily as bad as it sounds. This is simply another way of saying, let him go into the hog pen, and maybe he'll come to his senses. That's really what this is saying. Turn him over to Satan. And I'm sure you remember the parable of the prodigal son. This is what happened to him. When he eventually looked down and saw what he was eating, you know, the slop that they would feed to the pigs, he came to his senses and returned to his father. And remember now, we're talking about someone who is in open rebellion to the clear teaching of God's word and this man who had committed immorality. They have by now been warned several times. No doubt uh, they had at least done part of the process and had at least talked to him and confronted him with his sin. So he's in open rebellion against what the Word of God clearly teaches. So in Paul's mind, it was very clear what they should have done. He says in verse 3, For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And notice, the reason even for church discipline is so that the person will come to their senses and repent and be saved if they're not saved, so that their soul will not perish. But in other words, Paul's saying, you know, you might be hesitant to follow the Lord's commands and practice church discipline, but I, as an apostle, have already made a decision on this. I have already decided to deliver this man over to Satan by removing him from the fellowship of the church. And then Paul gives the reason for discipline. Why is this kind of discipline necessary in the church? Why is it so critical for us to be willing to practice Matthew 18? The reason is because sin is a spiritual malignancy. 
and it will not stay isolated, but it will eventually affect the entire church. You know, on the day before the Passover feast in the Old Testament, the Jews had a very interesting thing that they were required to do. The law declared that every Jew on the night before Passover was to take a lantern, a candle, and to go through and search his house for every little bit of leaven and remove it. He must make sure that his house is completely free of all leaven. And by the way, this is the origin of the idea of spring cleaning. You might be thinking about that already. But this day would have been April 14th. And this was where the whole concept of spring cleaning comes from. But we know that in the Bible, leaven was a symbol for sin. And the whole idea was to cleanse your house of sin. The idea was that was being communicated through this is that just a little bit of leaven that is left in the house could eventually infect the whole house. And so you better make sure you don't have any leaven anywhere. Leaven can be used as a symbol for any kind of influence, but it is often used in Scripture in the sense of an evil influence. You know, when the Israelites left Egypt, they were commanded not to take any leaven. Why was that? It was symbolic of not taking anything from the life of bondage into the life of promise. That's why Passover, which represents deliverance, is always celebrated with unleavened bread. But when we get to the New Testament, we see that Christ is our Passover. And we are to celebrate our Passover in Christ Not with an annual feast, but with a constant life of devotion and a constant rejection of sin. Discipline in the church assists this celebration by removing impurities that will contaminate and corrupt it. And what discipline does is to help preserve Christ's body from the permeation of sin. But this wasn't happening in the Corinthian church. Apparently, the Corinthians had even been boasting about their so-called grace in allowing this man to go without accountability. But Paul told them their boasting was not good. Not good. It was not good because of the danger of the leaven of sin that was being allowed to remain. And Paul knew that this would ultimately weaken the entire church. But there's one more thing that we need to see here. So lastly, note the sphere of discipline. The phrase in verse 9 that says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, apparently refers to a letter that Paul had previously written to them. This letter is often referred to as the lost letter. This was what Paul's talking about here. 
The word associate with is a word that means to mix up with. In this compound form, it is even more intense than normal, and it would literally mean to keep intimate, close company with. So we need to understand, Paul is not saying that you should shun them or not have anything at all to do with them, but that you should not have close, intimate fellowship with them. This would be similar to how you might view your relationship with an unbeliever. I mean, look at verse 10. Paul says, I did not mean at all, uh, excuse me, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world in order to completely remove yourself from any association with unbelievers, you'd have to leave this world, get on a you know, a rocket and take off somewhere, go to some other planet. Of course, there's going to be always a certain amount of associating with non-Christians, especially if we're seeking to evangelize them. So who is Paul referring to here? He's talking about so-called brothers, those who profess to know Christ but are not showing it through holy living. Look at verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Here Paul mentions some other types of flagrant sins for which these principles of discipline would also apply. And again, these do not describe one-time offenses, but lifestyles that are dominated by these sins. And in closing, let me just mention that uh, what very well may be the greatest objection to this issue of church discipline is that people may bring up the old uh, issue of, well, what about where the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. And people today think that the practice of church discipline is wrong because it is judging. So let's look at that for just a moment in closing. That, by the way, is found in Matthew 7. So why don't you turn to Matthew 7 in your Bible for just a moment. Matthew 7. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. We need to see it in its context. So let's read verses 1 through 5. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will, be, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, there's a whole lot in there I could um, say about this, but let me just quickly point out a couple of important observations. First of all, do not judge cannot mean 
never make any kind of judgment. It cannot mean that. This passage does not say you should never judge. Instead, it indicates that before you do, you should make sure you deal with yourself first. And the truth of the matter is that not only is judging right in some cases, but the Bible also commands it in certain situations. And many of the commands in Scripture require that we make judgments. This is part of the way God has created us. Man has the ability and the responsibility to make value judgments. Without them, it would really be impossible to live the Christian life. For example, Jesus told his listeners that their righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, obviously... They would have to make some value judgments in order to assess and compare their own behavior to that of these men. Interestingly, right after Jesus forbade judging, he instructed his listeners to beware of false teachers in Matthew seven fifteen to 23. They would have to make some value judgments in order to discern who was false and who was genuine. This is not saying never make any judgments. And we could go on for a while in this passage, but the bottom line is you can't just take one verse of Scripture out of context and build your theology upon it. In Matthew 18, 15 to 17... We are clearly commanded to make judgments concerning others in the church. We have the command to do this given by the Lord Jesus himself. And we have an example of this by Paul here in 1 Corinthians 5. So this is something the Lord unequivocally expects us to do. If we're going to conform to Scripture and please the Lord of the church, we're going to have to be willing to practice church discipline when it is needed. Let's pray together. Father, we know that this is something that's difficult at times for us to consider. And yet, Lord, it's clear from your word. We have a clear example of it here in this letter of 1 Corinthians. So, Lord, help us not to be afraid to do these things. Help us to do it the right way. Help us to do it humbly. Help us to do it uh, with Christ-like love. And yet, Lord, we know it's important for us to practice church discipline because you, you want your church to be holy. And we know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so, this is part of the way you have designed to keep your church pure. And so, Lord, we, although we might hesitate at times, help us to have the courage and the commitment to please you, the Lord of the church, that we might be committed to such practices and help us to do it with your wisdom always. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.